Today, um, I want to call an audible. I, I told our team there's just something that, that I, I want to talk about that um, I think that we need to listen to. I, I mean, all of us to what I think Jesus is saying in Scripture. Um, next week, we're starting a, a series we're really excited about called Red Flags and talking about red flags in our relationships, friendships, dating, marriage, parent, child, all of that. And it's going to be really, really good. So um, be here next week and bring some friends. How do I start? A couple weeks ago, our, our staff had the opportunity to go to a conference at one of the largest churches in the country a church that I tremendously respect and a pastor I have just utmost respect for. He is someone that has just led with integrity. And I just, I told Frank last year, I was like, man, we just, we need to do whatever we can to get our team there. Our team hasn't been together to a skills training conference for seven or eight years. So we were due. And so we went and had a fantastic time. It was a great learning experience. Uh, it was morning and night. Um, Lisa and I didn't have really have an opportunity to debrief until we got back to the Atlanta airport. And um, we're sitting in the airport, and she said, so what did you think of the conference? And I said, the conference was amazing. Except. And she's like, What? I said, I don't want to say anything. It's me. It's not, it has nothing to do with them or anything, but it's really hard for me to listen to someone tell me to be like Jesus when I know that they have an extraordinary, an exorbitant net worth. Like a lot of money. And earned it, but just a lot of money. I said, I, I, I said, this is, she's like, what's going on? I was like, this is more where I am right now. Not about him, not about the church. It's about me. That, like if Jesus was sitting right here in the airport, like what would he be saying about how we need to be living and how we need to be leading and where our church needs to be? Like if he was sitting here and I'm not con- I'm not convinced, essentially, what we were hearing at this conference is it. So, I've been chewing on three scriptures. First scripture is this. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. What Jesus is saying is that for people who are rich, don't pray to him for help so that you can be more comfortable, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's saying, right? And woe is, a, is an Old Testament prophetic statement, and it's actually an indictment on wealthy people. Well, who's he talking to? Well, here's the background on who he's talking to. In Lower Galilee, where Jesus lived, and the people that he was speaking to, there were roughly 200,000 people, about the size of Salt Lake City or Binghamton, New York, that greater area. It's about the size, right? 
And of the 200,000 people, 1% owned all the land and all the wealth to 2,000 people. And they lived in the cities and urban areas, two cities. Four miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus was from, there was a city called Sepphoris. And there's a town called Tiberias, named after the Roman emperor, Tiberius, on the western shore of Sea of Galilee. The 2,000 people that owned all the land and wealth lived in those two cities. The 198,000 people, the agrarian peasants that Jesus was speaking to, lived in little villages. In Hebrew, it's called Kafar. Jesus lived in Kafar Nahum. We call it Kafarnim. Jesus drew crowds almost entirely from these 198,000 agrarian peasants, farmers, artisans, fishermen, slaves who lived in small villages and some wealthy people that used their resources to support Jesus, no doubt. Jesus' typical follower was malnourished and lived on 1,800 calories a day. 25 to 50% of those calories came from bread and wine. Think about that. Think about if every single day half of your calories came from watered down wine and bread. Where Jesus lived and preached, 30% of all children died by age six. Imagine how devastating that would be. 60% of those who lived past age six died by 16. 75% who lived past 16 years age died by 26 years of age. Which means at 33 years of age, Jesus would have been older than 80% of his followers. The average Jesus follower was forced to pay roughly 50% of their income in Jewish temple taxes, Roman taxes, and to their landlords. Most of these people were farmers that farmed on four acre plots of land that they didn't own. And come harvest time, they would have to take 50% of their crops and give it to the landlord to sell who was living in either Sepphoris or Tiberias. The typical Jesus follower at 30 years of age had lice, rotten teeth, intestinal parasites, and profoundly diminished eyesight. Which means, for those of us in the room that, have, that slept last night on a raised bed over a roof, have had dental care at least one time, have had a doctor at least one time, and aren't protein deficient, which the majority, based on um, exhuming bodies from the first century and analyzing their bones, DNA evidence, the majority of people in Palestine were protein deficient. If we have ever, ever been to a hospital and we're older than 30 years of age, we are better off than every single person Jesus spoke to. So the question is, who is Jesus speaking to when he says, woe to you who are rich, you have already received your comfort. One of my favorite people I've interviewed on on a podcast uh, was a guy named Shane Claiborne. I'm getting ready to launch in the fall, uh, again, a podcast uh, called 21st Century Jesus. Because I'm interested, if Jesus was here today, how would he live? What would he look like? Well, I interviewed a guy that I thought could help us understand that. Shane Claiborne was a student at Eastern University. And he and his friends decided that they want to do an internship with Mother Teresa. 
So they stayed up in the middle of the night and were in the lounge of their dorm and had a bunch of quarters and were feeding it into a payphone. Some of you don't remember payphones. You can go see them. They're in museums. They're in a payphone and um, they're flipping quarter, putting quarters in there and a lady answers on the other line as they're calling the convent. They just found a number from somewhere. And she says, Hello? Shane said, she's so hard of hearing. She said, it was my, he was like, was this Mother Teresa? Yeah. Who is that? Hello? Anyway, so he said, uh, me and my, my friends, we want to come over and to Calcutta, and we want to do an internship with you. And she said, okay, I'll see you. Hangs up. So they make their way to Calcutta. They introduce themselves. I talked on the phone. And uh, they gave them living quarters and they served for a period with Mother Teresa going into the streets, picking up people who were almost dead, bringing them into the convent, cleaning them off and ministering to them in their last hours. He said one of the first things that he would notice, because the very first thing that they did in the morning as they gathered for prayers is that he always sat behind Mother Teresa. And when she went forward to pray as she was bowing, He said, honest, honest, she had the nastiest feet I've ever seen. And he he was so disturbed by it, he said, every morning for prayers that eventually I asked another of the nuns that were there, is she okay? And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. Um, Once a year we get a shipment of shoes. There's an organization that will go and gather used shoes and she'll bring them and she'll wait till all of the children, all of the adults, all of the nuns, everybody picks the shoes over and then she always grabs the worst pair. And after doing this for 30 years, her her feet have become deformed. He said, do you want to know why they call her mother? We learned they call her mother because they're actually, she's actually their mother. That's why she got that nickname. To the children and the people that were living there that had lost their mother and that were living on the streets, she became their mother. She said that because the people that they were ministering to didn't have warm water, that she has dedicated herself to taking cold showers out of solidarity of being with them. Now, they were so profoundly impacted by their experience with Mother Teresa that this whole group of students came back. And there was a a whole city street of, 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 of single moms and street people, essentially, that were being evicted in the Kensington area of Northeast Philly, that they went and they bought all of these homes together and they moved into the homes. They call it the simple way. And they completely have transformed that whole area by doing what Mother Teresa did because Mother Teresa did that because Jesus was doing that. And I just, like, don't we want to see those kinds of courageous Acts by people here at CCV, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I know we have the people and I know we have a heart, but uh, I just, I don't want us to have this expectation that here we are in the suburbs and it's nice. I remember when we moved here 
And I took my daughter into this new multi-million dollar building. The very first thing I did is I turned around and I looked at her and I said, I want you to never forget this. Very few people on the planet get to experience this. Um, one of the things, particularly if those who are around the country, if you're not here in the United States, you don't, want to, you don't know what's going on with our housing market. Our housing market's crazy. And so everybody is thinking, my house is, my house is worth so much money, right? Like, oh my gosh. And we're thinking to ourselves, we ought to sell right now. Like you check Willow, Zillow and that sort of thing. You're like, let's sell this house, but why don't we? Because if we sell the house, you'd have to buy another house, right? Like you don't win. And you know, why, why would you do that? Except for the fact that maybe if we were challenged by Jesus and willing to follow his example, that we would sell our homes and we would move to the worst street in Pottstown. Like a whole bunch of us would. And that way you'd make a whole bunch of money on your house and you'd get a super cheap house and maybe you wouldn't have to work as much and you could show God's love in a practical way to the people there. Like, ask yourself the question honestly, if Jesus was in your situation and he could sell your house and make the amount of money that you could, would he stay in your house or would he go to downtown Norristown? The reason I'm bringing that up is not because of you, it's because of me, it just bugs me that to think that I have become so trapped in the American system, the American dream, that that would be just utterly weird. But this week was Surfest. I'm so proud of everybody. I, I was literally like hobbling around. I was the guy that Lisa says, go pick this up 50 times and bring it here and that sort of thing. And I've just shown up to the different things. I'm so proud of you serving. Like the Red Cross, literally, I checked this. I was like, no, this isn't true. They just say this stuff to get us to get more blood. Like we saved literally 120 lives with the amount of blood that we gave. Think about that. That's awesome. The only thing I have to say is stop because I could never sign up because you sign up and take all the spots. Stop doing that. The first day, don't sign up. Say, just I'm giving Brian a day to sign up. Because every time I try to sign up, you have taken all the spots. But I just think that's awesome. That you literally, you could be doing anything. Chilling at Netflix and you're turning around giving blood to save people. Operation 143, the, the director was so emotional because they were out of food. That we replenished them for the rest of the school year. That 300 kids, you know, basically, yeah, 300 kids, right? Like, for the rest of the school year, they can't eat, right? Like, I mean, you and I both know our government spends ridiculously stupid amounts of money with our taxes on dumb stuff that they shouldn't. But this, school meals and stuff, yeah, we all want that. Just stop wasting our money on other stupid stuff. But I just think, I just think it's powerful that we did this. All the hundreds of bags for, for foster kids and they were going to the prison and pregnancy centers, all this stuff. And the Challenger baseball game on June 5th, I want, I want our whole church to show up for this. So young adults with special needs, we're going to have this game. And we need people who are willing to be player buddies. And we need people to come out and cheer like you're at a Phillies game. Like when they actually won the series years ago, when they were good. Remember, cheer, remember when they were good? 
And I just want them to feel just a fraction of just the love and the pride that that Jesus has for them. Here's a second verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We've all heard this verse, right? Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross, right? Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But let me break this down just so we actually get this. Disciple is someone that learns to do. A disciple is not someone that learns to think, I know this command, but actually does the command. We are doers of the word, not hearers only, right? They deny themselves. In other words, the things that you want to do, you don't do them. So you can do the things that Jesus wants to do, right? Pretty clear. And to take up your cross, in the ancient world, there are blatant examples of crucifixion is a social punishment. In other words, if you're in a town and you know it's that jerk Billy who keeps stealing all the stuff and he turns around and murders someone and everybody knows it's Billy, the Romans turn around and crucify Billy. But what they do is they make Billy take the cross beam, put it on his shoulders and walk through town. Why? Because it gives the town an opportunity to exact their revenge on Billy before he gets to the cross to get crucified. In other words, there are historical examples of people going through town and the people, the townspeople are ripping Billy apart, literally. Cutting stuff off of him, pulling his eyes out, pulling the hair, pulling cutting fingers off, pulling private parts off, just nasty stuff. Brutal mobs. You know why they didn't do that to Jesus? Because everyone knew he was innocent. But that's what crucifixion is. And so Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you have to do what I'm telling you to do. And you have to understand that it's going to exact social pressure on you such that you might be killed. Now, why is this a problem? It's a problem because when have any of us been truly persecuted for our faith? Honestly. And we can't say that we live in America and that sort of thing. Because in scripture, the apostle Paul goes to Ephesus, which was like Rome was like New York City and Ephesus was like Philadelphia, right? It's sort of like New York City without Broadway, right? And Ephesus was the center of the worship of Aphrodite. And one guy, the Apostle Paul, goes and starts telling people about Jesus. And there's such a disruption in the business of idol creation that a silversmith that made idols by the name of Demetrius, the book of Acts tells us, gets so, and I can't say this in church, but I'll say it anyway, gets so pissed that people are leaving the faith of uh, the worship of Aphrodite and worshiping Jesus that his business is over. So he gets all of the silversmiths together who institute or instigate a mob. They go into, and hopefully this summer you'll go with me. We're, this, this place in Ephesus has 24,000 seats and the place was filled with people who want to kill one man, Paul. And they warn them, don't go in there. They'll literally pull your body, pull your parts. 
One man did that. One. Apostle Paul goes into another town and they're like, oh, we know who you are. Because you and your band of people, the six or seven people that are traveling with you, are turning the world upside down. Seven people. Peter and John are teaching about Jesus in the temple months after Jesus was crucified. Think about that. Do you think Peter and John were were thinking, we're going to get crucified? You better believe they're thinking they're going to get crucified. Jesus gets killed Easter in April. And by June, Peter and John are in the same temple preaching about Jesus. They arrest them. The Sanhedrin that was there that condemned Jesus to death. They're standing before them and Peter, it says, was filled with boldness and tells them, you crucified Jesus. But God raised him from the dead and offers them the opportunity to repent. And you want to know what the bystanders said when they were watching this? Look at this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The same Jesus that we're supposed to be with. So logic would say that if we're spending time with Jesus, we ought to be getting into situations not because we're being jerks. That's unthinkable. Not because we're pursuing persecution. That's pathological. Go to a counselor to get that fixed. But because you love people enough that you're sick and tired of seeing the pain in their life, that you're willing at lunch tomorrow to sit down at their table in middle school or high school or at your corporation where you are and strike up a real authentic friendship that eventually maybe five to six to 10 to 12 to 16 months from now might open the opportunity where you have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Nobody's getting crucified here. And I'm talking to me. I need to stop using the excuse that I'm an introvert. I need to stop using the excuse that I don't have time. I need to stop using the excuse that people think that they can't relate, with, relate to me because I'm so good looking. I need to stop. You know what I'm saying. So, um, so uh, Lisa... You know how the past two weekends have been terrible? This weekend's awesome, right? That was sweet yesterday, right? Uh, but the weekend before and the weekend before that, Mother's Day, it's like, okay, we get it, rain. We're good. We're good for a while. We're good. So Lisa, Lisa likes to go get some flowers and plant them. So she said, hey, you got any cash? I'm going to go get some flowers. I said, no, nope, a homeless guy's got it. And she was like, a homeless guy took our money? I was like, no, 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 you know, I gave alms. I, so Lisa and I have decided, there's a scripture in Matthew 6 that we're, that we're to give alms to the poor. So we've set the amount that for us, $60 is actually a, a good bit of money for us. It's not like a couple dollars, but it's the pain threshold of 60 bucks is now some serious cash, right? And so it means something to us. So We'll just take it. I'll get it once a month when I'm at the grocery store and I'll tuck it in my wallet and I'll fold it in half and I'll put it in hers. Anyway, so I'm on the phone and someone was watching our dog. Someone was watching Meadow and I'm going to pick him up and I'm on the phone and I see this guy walk with this 
sign that says that he's homeless. And I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on. So I go and I grab the money. I go over to him and I hand him the money. And I said something like, God bless you or something like that. And I go back uh, to my phone. I'm in the car. And, and I saw him like talking to me like, thank you. This, this meant a lot. And he just stood there for a bit because I don't know, somehow I think that he wanted to talk, but I was on the phone. I couldn't get off this call. And here's this guy that wanted to talk. And then I'm thinking later that, you know, like, you know, in, in Matthew 25, Jesus is like, you know, there's going to reach a point in your life where you're going to have an opportunity to sit down with me and we're going to review your life. And, and Jesus is like, I'm just going to tell you right now that there are going to be lots of opportunities where I'm going to show up, but you're not going to recognize me because I am going to be embodied in the life of someone that is homeless and poor, prison, and I'm single, I'm, I'm a foreigner that came in, that sort of thing, and, and you're not going to notice me. And, and if you don't notice me, um, like you're a goat, like you look like a sheep from a hundred yards away but you're a goat. And I'm sitting there thinking that I swear to you, if he was here today, he would say something to me. Like if your iPhone causes you to sin, take it out into the yard and smash it with a sledgehammer because better to lose your cell phone than to be thrown into hell. Okay. Third verse. This is a long one, but this is Jesus does. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through the wide gate. So there's a little narrow gate that you got to go get through it, right? And then there's a wide gate where just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He's not talking about these are all the people that are like going to hell. And then there's the skinny little gate where the real followers of Jesus. No, no, no. He's talking about all the people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. That there is a little skinny gate where the real ones are getting through. And then there's a broad gate of other people that call themselves Christians. And they're going through that one. So enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And then he continues and says this, watch out for false prophets. And you're like, what does what false prophets have to do with the narrow gate and the broad gate? And he gets to that. Watch for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or fig from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad... I'm all like, Jesus, come on, get to your point. And thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. And I got to pause there and ask, what is he talking about? You always read scripture in context. And the context is that there is essentially a message that goes out to people that it's hard to be a disciple of Jesus or it's super easy to be a disciple of Jesus and it is the false prophets that are telling people "Eh, come to Jesus he'll fulfill your self-esteem and it's going to be sweet honestly it's going to be great it's easy you know show up Sunday throw a few bucks in that sort of thing not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who thinks about the will of my father who's in heaven 
learns about the will of my father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, we did all kinds of cool Jesus stuff. We drove out demons from people who were Dallas fans and in your name performed many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Am I the only one that's frightened by that? No, I get the whole thing. The whole justification by faith and not by work. I get that. Francis Chan said, while we can't force people to be devoted, it may be that we've made it too easy for them not to be. By trying to keep everyone interested and excited and come on to church, it's going to be great. We've created a cheap substitute for devotion. If Muslims were advertising free donuts and a raffle for a free iPad as a means to get people to their events, I would find that ridiculous. It would be proof to me that their God does not answer prayer. If they needed rock concerts and funny speakers to draw crowds, I would see them as desperate and their God as cheap and weak. Rather than creating our own pep rallies, our calling is simply put him on display and watch him as he draws people to himself. If they're not interested in him, what do we think we're accomplishing by trying to lure them by other means? About 10 years ago, we got out of the luring business. And we got into the Jesus business. Um, This is important because Man, you find out real quick who's going the narrow road and who's going the broad road. Because all it takes is something like a pandemic for two-thirds of the people to say. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace. If it weren't possible to come to you And to speak to the Father by your grace, we would be obliterated in your presence. All of us fall short of you. But Father, deep inside of us, there is a longing to be your disciples, to live the way you actually live, to do the things you actually did. And Father, we just want to say, we're ready. These people are ready. I'm ready. Ready. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.